everything that we experience starts in our mind and everything that happens in the world except for natural stuff comes from a mind or collective of minds whether that's the war in russia or, or other things and in the west we are not trained to train our mind basically we just grow up and we are taught how to do math and speak languages and stuff and all of that is good and great and really valuable but if we're not taught how our mind works and how we can be more deliberate about how we show up in life that just seems crazy hello and welcome to the melting pot i'm your host dominic monkhouse the melting pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The melting pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Rasmus Hogard. He's based in Copenhagen. And his firm has done, about three years ago, his firm did a massive research project talking to CEOs and leaders to try and find out how people do hard stuff with humanity. And in fact, as we get towards the end of our conversation, they've got some research that shows your ability to be promoted inside an organization is directly linked to your ability to do this. And he thinks from his own research, maybe one in a hundred people are naturally wired to be able to give difficult feedback the right way instinctively. And for the rest of us, we're on some continuum between we can't do it at all to we are one of those hundred and we find it really easy. And I think it's one of the things that holds teams back. So we look at Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team and that that trust, trust and fake harmony. So how do we step in or even Kim Scott's radical candor? If we care deeply about people, it's on us to be direct and and to care and to give them the feedback that they need to grow, to be the best version of themselves that they could be. So Rasmus and his team have done all of this research and they've got a framework, which we'll talk through with him about how, how do you learn to do these things and what sort of daily practices you might need to put in place. He himself spent a lot of time in Buddhist monasteries, learning the arts of mindfulness, not as a way of driving employee wellness, but actually driving leadership behaviors and what might be the difference between men and women in these behaviors and how they show up, what might be who makes the best leaders even, and how to drive bottom line performance in your organization through having great leaders as a result of mindfulness and the practice or rolling out of his framework. Absolutely fascinating conversation. I could have spoken to him all day, kept it to just under an hour. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. 
So my name is Rasmus. I am based in Copenhagen, living with my two cats, sometimes the three kids, but they're so grown that they are mostly elsewhere these days. Um, I'm a researcher by background, been spending a good chunk of my life in monasteries around the world, training my mind and training my heart to be a better person. And I took the combination of research and all this monastic affairs and, and, and turned that into Potential Project, which is basically a global research and leadership firm that helps companies to create a more human world of work. And we work with everything from Cisco and Accenture and McKinsey and Microsoft to all the tech firms of the world. And so I'm really helping them to create better leaders that take better care of their employees and create cultures that are for us for good. That's the short story. Monasteries then. Why have you spent lots of your time in monasteries? Because ultimately, everything that we experience starts in our mind and everything that happens in the world, except for natural stuff, comes from a mind or collective of minds, whether that's the war in Russia or, or other things. And in the West, we are not trained to train our mind, basically. We just grow up and we are taught how to do math and speak languages and stuff. And all of that is good and great and really valuable. But if we are not trained how our, our taught how our mind works and how we can be more deliberate about how we show up in life, that just seems crazy. Absolutely crazy. So when I started to realize that by a few simple training techniques, I could become more focused, I could become more kind, I could basically develop a much greater understanding of myself, I thought, wow, everybody should have this. So that's why I kept doing it and still do it. Aha. Uh -huh. So meditation practice, gratitude practice, journaling? Yeah, not so much journaling, but uh, the others, yes, and much, much more. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, from the monasteries, you get it in a, in a time-tested, proven way. It's not like, you know, a new soapbox lifestyle expert that has some new idea about how you do something. But, you know, these are methods that are 2,500 years old, at least, that have been proven for, you know, for centuries. There's such a wealth of wisdom. It feels like, uh, like the last few thousand years in the west we have developed everything from cars and chewing gum and nuclear bombs and and that's amazing like what we've done in the external world but what they've done in, in many places in the east they've developed those same technologies as special just for the mind it's incredible it's really incredible and then i find it fascinating that then you get sort of modern neuroscience being able to say oh and actually now we know why this works and you know this is what happens to your dopamine and this is what happens to serotonin and this is why you would want to do it yeah that's exactly right it's uh, i've been connected with dalai lama for many years and he is literally sitting and laughing every day thinking about the fact that the lineages that go from the ancient wisdom traditions that what they've been saying for 2,500 years, now in the West, we start to really understand it because there's science behind it. But, you know, all of what science is finding now, at least most of it is, has been known for thousands of years already. Or even the Wim Hof sort of rediscovering breathing techniques, which allow you to sort of heat your body. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in the, you know, if you get caught in a snowstorm in the Himalayas, you know, if you don't have those types of skills as a monk, then, you know, you're not going to make it back to the monastery. That's exactly right. And, you know, Wim Hof, I believe, learned that from Buddhist monks, who it's, I mean, originally is called Tumo, the practice that he's doing, or inner, inner heat. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. 
It's fascinating stuff. So the premise of your work is around, we've got to do hard stuff as leaders. You've done a big research project. You spoke to lots of people. How many people did you and your colleagues speak to? Because I'm guessing it wasn't just you. No, it wasn't me. No, it was, we were a larger group about that. Uh, we, we talked to, we in-depth interviewed around 350 either CEOs or CHROs. The CEOs, because they're the ones that have to take the really difficult decisions and the CHROs are the ones to execute them. And the reason why it's the CHROs is because any CEO you talk to or any senior leader, if you ask them what's really difficult, it's never the billion dollar strategic decision. That's just stuff that you do, that's your profession. But it is when you have to do something that impact other people's lives, that's hard. So it's the CEOs and CHROs that we talk to and really to figure out from their experience, how do you do hard things in a human way? And then we assessed some 75,000 leaders around the world and collected a lot of data together with Harvard Business Review and collaborated with Harvard Business School and Stanford and Berkeley and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, it's a big, big study. It was good. At one level, I'm surprised and delighted, right? So I'm I'm surprised that they found it difficult to make tough decisions. And at the same time, I'm heartened that they found it difficult to make tough decisions. Because you would think, particularly if you're looking at large organizations, you know, people would have got used to it or got hardened to it, or people's perception of a CEO in a large company, particularly one driven by money and driving shareholder value, is that actually the human side of it's already gone and and it's only in smaller businesses where where that still survives. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. It, certainly historically that was true in the past decades, not the last five, 10 years that has changed a lot, but also it depends on industry. If you go to mainly finance industry, what you're saying is true. Most other industries, senior leaders are generally extremely aware of the impact they have on others. And that's a tough burden when you have a lot of people that you are feeling responsible for. But you won't see this because you only see, you know, all the strategic stuff they do and that they make hard decisions. And you think they're hardened to it, but none of the ones that I talked to felt hardened to it at all. I'm amazed and delighted by that. Um, and this might be, hopefully not, but could be timely if we think about, you know, are we about to suffer from some sort of global recession? as a result of, you know, post-pandemic and quantitative easing and a war in Ukraine and, 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 people might have some tough decisions that they're going to have to make. And so what were some of the findings that you found? I guess, because you're, you're saying, well, we, so we went and spoke to them and we, we found out how they did it. And, and then you're in a position where you're now teaching other people. So what are some of the things you found out that were surprising? I think the first one, which is a really important one, is to make a distinction between empathy and compassion, where most of us think that they're more or less the same, but they're absolutely not. And in leadership, it is very important to be educated about the difference and how to lead with compassion rather than with empathy. So just an explanation for that. Empathy is an emotion, and it is the emotion that we experience when we see someone else that suffers. What happens is mirror neurons in our brain is basically activated and we feel what they feel. Now that's a, it's an amazing human feature that we can basically replicate the emotion of someone else. And it's what has made us as humans stay together in families and societies and nowadays in companies 
because we connect with each other through emotions. And that's really, really important as a leader to have that ability to connect with others emotionally through empathy. But if we stay in empathy, which is what most human beings do, and as leaders, we do tough things, that means we inflict suffering, which we also observe, that can lead to a lot of distress and burnouts. That is something we want to avoid, also because it doesn't help other people if we just sit down and, yeah, this sucks, this is tough, I feel it too. It's not helping anybody. So we need to learn to connect with empathy, but to lead, lead with compassion, which means a bit, compassion, basically, with the definition is the intention. So not emotion, but the intention to want to be of service for others' well-being. So compassion is about taking a step back from the emotion. Ask yourself the question, what can I do or what does this person need right now? And then move into action. So in, in short, empathy plus action equals compassion. Okay. Have you got an example to bring that to life? Mm, yeah. So uh, the, the CHRO of a very large, uh, very global uh, retail company shared how she had historically always been leading with empathy because it was a big part of their whole culture, like care for others, togetherness, and so on. So she thought that the right thing was to basically sit and be in pain with others. And she was always frustrated how even if she would sit for 15 minutes or even half an hour, an hour with someone and empathize with them, that those people were never better off after that. And about three years ago, we started working together and I started to explain them this theory and the, the tools to avoid this empathetic hijack. And she started to apply it. And she said, like the first time she did it, it was not like she needed to practice it. It was just a mental shift to go from empathy into compassion. And suddenly she felt like within five minutes, she was able to either hear the person out or find the solution to the problem. And she would have people leaving her office with big smiles and feeling much more, um, you know, freed from the burden. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a big shift. It's just a mental shift, but it's an incredibly important one. And so what do you have to do to stop getting hijacked by empathy? First of all, and I'll just, I've said it before, but I'll say it again so people don't misunderstand it. We should never let go of empathy. Empathy is really important. We need to connect with empathy. But then when we have connected, we feel the pain that someone other, others feel or they see that we are like aligned with them, there's that rapport created. Then we need to basically say, okay, I now feel it. Now I'm going to go into a rational space. I'm going to make a bit of distance between us and then really rationally contemplate what is needed here and then go into action. And one may think, oh, that sounds very simple. And yes, it is extremely simple. But what happens when we move into action mode and when we decide I'm not going to be engaged in the emotions right now is the emotions dissipate because we can only be focused on one thing at the time. Either we are emotionally engaged or we start to think about what we can do about it. Hence the shift. Uh, okay. So instead of being with them in that sort of present state, I can't remember who it was now, but he said somebody would come to them and said, something was happening and he said well you know and, and it was making them feel bad and he said well just stop doing it or stop feeling bad and somehow the people get trapped they get trapped in that emotion and you're just helping them get out the other side and that's saying, exactly right yeah yeah because because we as humans we are wired for altruism even darwin wrote about this he was just mis misinterpreted for a few hundred years but we are wired for compassion. We are wired for wanting to do good for others. And therefore, when we see someone suffering and we feel it too, 
it feels like we're doing the right thing. It's like righteous indignation. It feels like, oh, this is such a strong emotion. I'm going to stay with it because it feels right. And it is right. It is a positive thing. But we can't help from that state. But it's very addictive. Empathy is basically an addictive state. Do you think there's a difference? I mean, is there a spectrum? Is there a difference, male-female difference? Hmm. What are you implying? I'm not trying to imply anything. I'm, 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 wonder, I'm wondering whether anything came up in the research. I, I'm just thinking about this often, often repeated phrase that, you know, what women want is just to, you know, to be listened to. And men don't do that very well because they keep offering solutions. Yes. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, as, as you were describing that sort of be less empathetic, be more compassionate, I was thinking, I wonder whether, I wonder whether that is, is what you mean or not. It, that, it could very well be true, and we haven't done research into that. However, what we did look at in our research, which was another, to me, personal surprise, was we looked at, so on the spectrum from empathy to compassion, specifically in leadership, so not in private life, not in all kinds of other things, empathy to compassion, men and women in leadership. And that was a surprise, because I think most people would say that women would probably be stronger to the empathy and men stronger to the compassion, but it was the exact opposite. So it basically said that women are more compassionate leaders, which means they are more willing to go in and help and solve problems for others than men are. Men are, according to the research, and this is just pure data. I mean, it's not even, it's not even us interviewing and interpreting. It's just pure data men are more likely to just sit and listen and feel it and do nothing about it. So basically men more empathetic and women more... Huh, completely the opposite. Completely opposite. Completely. And then we dug into that data and started to gather some more data. And then was another... I, ha I can't say it was a surprise to me. I had probably expected it. But I'll just bottom line it. Women are better leaders. Periods. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry, all of you blokes out there, because this is just data very clearly share, sharing that basically asked a lot of employees relations to their leaders and the genders. And it's very clear out of the four possible constellations, a female to a female, female to a male, male to a female, and male to a male as a leader and to a follower. The best, absolute best constellation is a female to a female. The second best is a female to a male follower. The third is a male leader with a female leader, or with a female follower, and the worst is a male to a male. So you, you can do the math here and see what's the, what's the, what, what's the secret ingredient that, that makes for good leadership relations. Yes, or even good employees. I don't know whether it's a book or an article. Why is the world full of shit male leaders and uh but you know the premise there is that men show up with confidence and that confidence is implies competence yes and they get hired and so turns out we're all wrong yeah it's it's so true that was another piece of the study that which just says exactly what you said they are just in numbers if you males males rate themselves as both more kind and basically more competent leaders and their followers as very low. Females rate themselves as very low, but their followers rate them as very high. So it's an exact opposite there. And it's, it's just confirming what you just said. So when you're working with Microsoft or Cisco, 
I mean, other than telling them to fire all the blokes and um, just promote all the women, uh, what what can you do to counteract what is obviously some sort of bias system? Mm. Yeah. Or, or is that, or, or you're not even doing that at all? Is that just in the data, but you haven't actually, that's not what you're, you're not being hired to help them with that? No, we, th- th- that is our, our work is not just to do research, but more to help solve the problems. And, um, and what our research showed, which is what we then do with our clients is females, first of all, need to have a stronger confidence through self-awareness of their strengths. This is what our research showed comes from practicing of mindfulness and then applying that in day-to-day work. So mindfulness is basically the tool that is the strongest impact on females' growth in terms of assessing themselves right and therefore have stronger self-confidence. And men need to practice basically compassion practices, perspective taking, seeing others for humans with suffering that they need to, you know, be better to. And again, impacted by mindfulness, the compassion in men? Certainly mindfulness as a foundation is very, very helpful. And it's, it's interesting because that people have been talking about, you know, bringing mindfulness into businesses from the point of view of well-being, which is lovely, but not related to bottom line or even top line performance. Whereas what you're suggesting is mindfulness as your secret weapon in improving the employee experience and also obviously improving business performance. Yeah. Yeah. That's simple. Mindfulness makes for better leaders. Better leaders makes for better performance. Period. Very good. If I'm a male leader, then what are some of the things that I should do to be a better leader? I mean, first of all, read our book because it's all in there. (laughs) But uh, secondly, focus more on care in your leadership and learn how to do the hard in a human way. And this is what our research then turned into was basically, how can we operationalize how to be a more compassionate leader, whether it's a man or a woman. And basically out of all the interviews and all the data, there were four things that were clear are like the four behaviors of leaders that are both competent and compassionate. And that's what, what, what males, but I would say also females, need to, need to follow. Those four things. The, it's interesting. I, I, I'd seen in the past a sort of three-legged stool articulation of you know, what drives trust. And it's competency, communication, and character. And then I'd read a bit of work about what people had felt about their commanding officer in Afghanistan. And actually, one of those things, the communication one had been replaced by care. And so I, it, I'm just thinking about those, those things that you're talking about there. They seem to be about, they seem to be things that would drive trust in leadership. Yeah, exactly. So when you apply these four behaviors step by step, you basically create more trust, psychological safety, and thereby performance in your teams, in your individual employees, and in the culture. And so what are, what are those, what are the four things? That's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, the, the four things is, uh, first of all, caring presence. The ability to show up to a difficult conversation, a performance conversation, a feedback conversation, a firing conversation, all the conversations that are not easy 
to show up with a caring presence, that means you are fully present with the person that is in front of you or the people that are in front of you. And we've created like simple mantras for all, all four of these states. The, the mantra for caring presence is be here now. So whatever the conversation is about, be here now. Let your phone be out the room, computer out the room. Just let go of everything you've just been doing and really hone in on this moment because it's a moment that matters. Then when you have developed the ability of really being caringly present in the moment with the person, step two is caring courage. And the mantra here is courage over comfort because going into difficult conversations by definition needs to take you out of the comfort zone. But we are comfort animals and we like to stay comfortable. And that's why in most companies, you see a lot of smiling faces that are just walking around and smiling all the time, meeting, smiling, being nice to each other. This niceness culture that doesn't create trust, that doesn't create psychological safety, that doesn't create real conversations because people don't dare to move into the courage zone. So basically growth and comfort cannot coexist. You need to get out of it and have the courage to move into the difficult, confrontational, itchy situations with others. That's the second step. And I'll just pause there before I move to the second one in case you have or the third oh, one. Oh, well, I, you know, I, 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 when I'm talking uh, with groups of people, I often say, would you tell me if I had spinach in my teeth? You do. There's a, there's a little bit on there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, about 30% of people will say, you know, and I say, okay, well, okay, not me, somebody you know. And still they'll go, that is an uncomfortable conversation and I'm not going to have it. And it's uncomfortable for them. And it's just, it's fascinating. So then when you say, okay, well, what if my fly was down or I tucked my skirt into my knickers? Oh, now 50% of people aren't going to have the conversation. And then I say, well, what about if I have bad breath or I'm a bit smelly? Now... 70% of people are not having the conversation. And my, my suggestion to them is that I don't, I think if you and I were going to have a conversation about poor performance on the job, I think it's much more like BO and much less like spinach, right? It is, it is more emotionally charged, but people are thinking about it from their perspective. And so I think you're absolutely right. That whole, if you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything. I think school doesn't teach you to, critique one another and it doesn't matter what size of organization i'm working with i think that fake harmony inability fake to have harmony yeah conflict is yeah yeah just the secret source of of high performance yeah yeah oh it it so is it so is and even in the companies where let's say feedback cultures have been really really like ingrained and massaged into the culture for decades and can, like an example is one very large professional services firm we work with, like feedback is the thing that they always talk about. But when we did a research into their culture and how people really feel, the statement came again and again, we are not having the real conversations. So even when we're taught to like push to give feedback all the time, somehow we end up not giving the real feedback, not having the difficult conversation. And I love your spinach and teeth test it's it's an excellent one because oh, if i'm doing a group if i'm doing a session with a group it's like okay who are the people who are going to feel uncomfortable like we just yeah. push a little bit they're already they're in yeah. fact they're already uncomfortable yeah yeah 
and then there are some other people who are who are much happy. And what I find if I've got ten people, there's probably one person who that genetically they're very comfortable to give to give very very difficult feedback like just straight off the bat it doesn't bother them at all and it's like if they get to do that then it gives other people somebody to mirror or you know to see what it could look like and that can be uh very helpful you're so right and if you're seeing it's one out of ten i want to be i want to hang out where you hang out because certainly <laughs> <laughs> what i experience is one out of a hundred <laughs> okay right okay and it, it's i i don't think it has anything to do it's interesting because as I've thought about it, I don't think it has anything to do with introversion and, or extroversion. But I do think, because I know some extroverts who are very capable of doing it, but I do think there are more introverts who are, seems to be more likely that the person who's, who's very comfortable to give very direct feedback is an introvert. Yeah, yeah. I think there's truth to that, yeah, yeah. And I think there's... There's something around how do we develop this? And we started to spend some time on this. And basically the, 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 the key thing there is have at least one uncomfortable situation every day. And ideally at the beginning of the day, because it's all about creating habits. I had, a, I had an interesting, when we were done writing the book and we started like going out to our clients and, and talking about these things, I realized that I had actually experienced this earlier in my life when I was 17. I was living at home. My dad wanted our house to be painted. I had dropped out of college and it was like a three-story house. So it was quite tall. And I had, what is it called, vertigo? Yeah. 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 So I started like painting down at the ground and the first two days were fine. <laughs> then I could like stand up and like stretch up a little bit. That was totally fine. On the fifth day, I had to get up on a ladder and I thought, I'm just going to take one step. And I took one step up and, you know, I could do all the way around the house again. And it was okay. And the day after I had to take two steps, but because I had just been on one step, two steps, ah, that was not a big deal. And slowly I was up there and I suddenly found myself after 10 days standing at the very, very, very top of the ladder. Like what was it? Seven meters down or something. And I was totally fine. And it was all about repeating, moving into discomfort and taking small steps. And so if we have one small uncomfortable situ uh, con conversation every day it just makes us more habituated to repeating it well uh again i can't remember who i what i was reading or listening to but there's but there was something about like taking a cold shower or going for a run you know getting up every day and doing something that makes you uncomfortable means that having an uncomfortable conversation is just another bit of discomfort. So if you, if you regularly spend time making yourself uncomfortable in some way, those feelings of discomfort are transferable into other things. Yeah, they are, at least to some degree. But I think that's in my own experience because I started doing ice bathing, so jumping in cold water <laughs> every morning. I've been doing this for three years now, and it's just fantastic. It gives such a, like, a sense of strength, and you just feel you, you're invincible. You can do everything. And while it does transfer to interpersonal stuff, not completely because there's something different from being in my own uncomfortable space to moving that into the uncomfortability of someone else. Okay. I, but I do think it's interesting, like, I don't know, like doing 30 push-ups or an ice bath, right? It, it never gets easier. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it would be nice if when you did something like that, you go and lift weights or something. It should, it feels as intuitively, it feels as though it should get easier, but I don't think it does. Does having difficult conversations ever get easier or is it always, 
because you, 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 I was just thinking about, I was just thinking about you painting the house. Like you were seven steps up, but still yeah. that last step was still just as uncomfortable as the first step. It hasn't got easier to go up the ladder. You've just got used to it. But nowadays I can go up to the top of any ladder and I feel fine. But I will say for myself, I used to be a very, 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 very conflict averse person. And that's transferred into how I was leading the organization. And, you know, being the founder of uh, what are we, 200 people or so, I have unconsciously created a culture of not sharing the truth, of not being courageous enough with each other. And it has in many ways impacted our culture in a negative way. And everybody in the organization knows exactly why. And there's deep respect for it, but it's still a problem. And so the last two years, I have really made an effort of developing at least my courage. And I can see how others are inspired by that. So we're generally, as a culture, starting to have more readily the difficult conversations. So it's very possible. But my own experience is you need to... Like on a Friday, it comes very natural. But after a week of vacation, I have to like consciously step into it again. Otherwise, it doesn't come there. So no, there is definitely some inertia. It's just pulling back to ground zero very easily. So when did you do the research? We started the research three years ago. Okay, so so you built this business. And then were you doing the research to even at a psychological level to fix a problem that you had internally? Or is it just <laughs> like, why did... How could you think I would be so self-centered? <laughs> There's no saying, if you want to learn something, teach it. And, uh, and I have learned something even better. If you want to really be an expert in something, write a freaking book about it because you get so deep into it. I was not aware of my lack of courage when we started this research project. Oh, that's fascinating. But because the organization was already 10 years old, like when we started it, I could start to see my own patterns through the conversations I was having. And then I started to change my, my, my behaviors. So performance of the organization or, uh, well, two questions. No, let me go with the first one. So the performance of the organization has improved now that you know these things and you're now more deliberate. We have, uh, we have quadrupled our revenue in three months since I really started to be more courageous. No, that's not true. I'm just trying to create a good ROI for people. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think I think that's a longer game. I think it takes time before you can see the change in performance because, you know, culture takes time. But I can certainly say it feels like a healthier place to be both for myself and for others. And have some people left because they liked the fake harmony? We generally don't have people leaving, so I just need to think about it. But no, nobody has left. No. But that could happen in the future. Who knows? Yeah, and I've seen executive teams I've been on when we've gone through transformations like this, and certainly it can happen with clients as well, where that accountability goes up. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Both as a leader or as, an, or as a member of the team. And, and some people say they would like the organization to be more transparent and be able to have difficult conversations. But a bit like buying a gym membership and not going to the gym actually you were in love with the idea not actually doing any of the work or any of the discomfort yeah yeah so true so true so where do you think you are on i don't know if if there was a scale of one to ten as an organization where where are you as an organization we're probably at a good strong four okay i would like us to get up to a eight and so how do you as the ceo how do you rate yourself then if the organization's a four and you want to get nate where have you got to I've probably gone from a good 
good, strong, solid one and a half, maybe two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being open here. Uh, and I'm probably at a six. And I'm honestly really happy and proud about that. I didn't know that I could do that, but uh, but I'm getting there and I'm very happy about it. As a way of compensating for that, had you hired people in the business who found it easier to be direct? I think I and we have historically hired people that were incredibly sweet and nice. And now we are definitely looking more for people that uh, are more obstructing and sharing their mind, definitely. And how do you hire for that? Well, there's a lot of questions you can ask in an interview situation that shows how people will respond or you can ask how they've historically done things. And then I think it's a, it's a bit of a gut feel. I mean, the difference between someone just sitting and smiling and, and trying to be nice and someone who's asking difficult questions, I think is, is quite obvious. It's not that difficult, I think. So uh, we did, we did caring, caring presence and caring courage. What are the other two things that... Those ones we always charge. So we can organize that i share that if you send send over a hundred bucks or buy the book yeah so the third step is when we have then developed caring presence and then moved into the discomfort and having the courage that then to have caring candor and the um, the mantra there is direct is faster but there's something really important to say about caring candor, which is it is not the same as brutal honesty and radical candor and those terms that are out there. That is a little bit about letting go of the heart and just, you know, being very professional and saying what needs to be said. This is caring candor. So it's always done with the intent that by me sharing what I'm sharing right now, may this person that I'm with be better off by that, even if he or she does not appreciate it or likes it. So there's always a care in it. It's interesting because Kim Scott said she, if she'd had a time again, she could have called the book uh, Caring Candor. I, you're kidding. No, no. But she said if a, if a uh, middle-aged white woman had written a book called Caring Candor, nobody would have bought it. Mm, that's probably true. That's probably true, yeah. yeah. And so if you, if you now look at the training that they're delivering, they tend not to say radical anymore because people use it to beat each other with which is actually exactly just yeah. being a dick yeah 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 that's that's exactly what it is yeah and i think there's one caveat to this one which is candor and being direct while it's generally fast in some cultures you need to really watch it especially asian cultures and there's also individuals and so on where you just cannot be too direct it just doesn't go well that's part of caring for them exactly yeah exactly yeah yeah and I, if, if you want a good story, I'll share a good story of Karen Kander, which was, um, I really like this one. It was really a mantra that I've taken with me. So it's the, it's the, the, the former managing partner of McKinsey, uh, Kevin Schneider, really, really wonderful person who every year had to go through the painful process of having meetings with all the ones that are up for partner, partner election. So imagine people that come for partner election have been with the firm for everything from eight to like 15 years, quite a long time, like really invested their life. In many cases, you would know them personally. And then having to have this conversation after all these years of hard work and tell them whether they made it or didn't make it. And the ones where they didn't make it, he had a mantra, which was basically to prepare the first and the last sentence. So that's all he would do coming into these conversations. 
and here comes the whole philosophy. So the first sentence would always be something like, this is not the conversation I was hoping to have today, but I have to let you know that you have not been elected for partner, you know, really shitty situation. And then he would stop there. And then the whole hour or two hours that was dedicated for the conversation, he would basically leave that to the other person to get angry, to get upset, to ask questions, to ask for clarification, to, you know, just go through their process and him simply being one that could facilitate people going through that very, very difficult conversation. And to me, that's such a beautiful example of directors fast. They're like, don't beat around the bush. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't wrap a hand grenade. Like, come into the meeting and as soon as you can, share the bad news. Because that's when the real conversation starts. If you start a, a difficult conversation with talking about the weather and asking about how their mother is doing, it's just not kind. You know, I was just, I've got one of the guys I grew up with. Uh, left school with no qualifications, but ended up going back part-time, doing a degree and and then got a job. But I suppose he ended up being a graduate trainee in a company as a, almost as a mature student. Hmm. And he found himself, his boss sat him down for an hour to tell him he wasn't getting a pay rise, but told him right at the end. And Steve's always been pretty good on his, you know, on his feet. And his boss says, have you got anything to say? And he said, yeah, next time you fuck me, have the decency to kiss me first. It was just, and I just think to my, you told me the story and it still makes me laugh. And I just think I've never had the presence to say that, but I just think I, I couldn't help but remember the story as you were telling that, you know, get it out, tell it first, don't yeah. leave it to the end. This is the exact opposite. Totally right. What, a, what, a, how, wow, man, he must've been fast on his feet saying oh. that. That's impressive. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. And what was, what was the last one? I'm not, I won't ask you to go through it in any detail, but what was the last one just for completeness? Caring transparency with, uh, with the mantra, clarity is kindness. It's really about treating people as adults by sharing what needs to be shared, not holding stuff back. It's not kind. Yeah. Yeah, that's the... Um, yeah, don't have a difficult conversation about somebody if they're not in the room. Mm, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So all of these constellations of caring presence, caring courage, caring X, Y, Z is really bringing together the heart, which is like courage, candor, transparency, which are the difficult things with the care, the compassion. So it's really about doing the heart with the human like hand and glove. And that is what is needed from, from leaders these days because it's inevitable that we have to do hard things. Question is, how can we do it in a, heart, in a human way? And that's what this framework is, uh, is helping to, to, to create. Fabulous. Um, Rasmus, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> Everything that we have just talked about. Uh, and I, <laughs> but I'm, I'm really, really, really serious. And, uh, and it's funny because in all the interviews that we did, the last question we asked them was, what is one advice you would tell your younger self? And I would say 75% of the CEOs we talked to, and these are known people around the world, they said something along the lines of, I wish I had learned to do the hard things earlier on and i wish i had learned that too you know i have burned people i have treated people disrespectfully unintentionally by not having by not having the difficult conversations and i think it's very human so i'm not blaming myself i just really wish i had had the courage and the skill to do the hard things in a human way rather than you know once i laid off a person without laying the person off i was just waiting for the person to resign and it's so unkind like you really have to step up if you want to lead people and learn how to do the hard things because it's the most compassionate and kind thing you can do. 
Everything else is indecent, period. So I wish I had learned to do hard things earlier. You're teaching it now inside organizations, but it doesn't, it doesn't get taught anywhere. Hmm. You know, and often you find yourself, oh, you know, what proportion of leaders in, do you think are good at this? You said one in a hundred before, but. Yeah, if you, so there is a very clear correlation. The higher you get in rank, the better you are at this. Probably because you get higher, you get promoted because you're good at these things. So it really depends where you're looking in your organization. Okay, so once you get promoted, point, say I, I interviewed a guy called Gareth Chick a few years ago on the podcast, and he works at Google coaching newly minted SVPs. And he said, but the problem is that you get promoted to the point where you can't know the answer to the questions you ask. And he said, that's a big difference for people because most of the time they know the questions they're asking. They know the answer. And so you're saying like at the point where you get past that, you're actually going to get promoted because uh, of these skills. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also because the higher you raise in ranks, the more challenging shit ends on your table that you need to deal with so you're basically much more spending time in fire which you know you need to deal with that uh-huh. okay um so other than compassionate leadership what other books should people be buying reading what what have you read on your journey so much so this is just totally i think this is a fabulous book and not so many people probably from your podcast has read it and it is a the tibetan book of living and dying by Sukhil Rinpoche. It's such an incredible book about human potential, what we can become, what we can develop, and how we can learn to live in the face of life, uh, face of death with incredible joy and, and compassion. That's a very good book. Any book of Jim Collins is awesome, I think. <laughs> so data-driven. I love data. Very good. Well, Rasmus, thank you very much indeed for coming on. It's absolute pleasure talking to you today. Very much the same. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.